Good morning, friends, family. Good to see you guys. Uh, fortunately, we don't need to ever be discouraged about how small the crowd is. I mean, Jesus would minister to the, the masses, and then he'd also minister to the one. And uh, what's important is that, that God's showing up to church, so praise God for that, that he is in our midst, even if it's just two or three of us. But, uh, but yeah, so we are talking about Vision Sunday once again, uh, kind of part two, couldn't fit it all in one. Uh, and normally we do intentionally try to teach through books of the Bible or we'll teach uh, topically. We kind of use both strategies. Some denominations seem to pick one or the other. But we think both are effective. Uh, but today, instead of choosing a topic or choosing uh, a book to, to study through, we're talking about us. We're talking about Valleytown Church, what we do uh, and why we do it. And fortunately, the answers to most of those questions are pretty much all of them is, the Bible, like it goes back to, to passages in in the Bible, and that's what motivates us. That's what drives us. Uh, where we don't just teach biblical concepts, we do our best to apply them in the way that we make our decisions, the way we do things. Uh, and it's valuable to take some time to talk about things like this, because I mean, you might wonder, like, why do we do things this way, or you know, what what causes us to make these sorts of decisions? And if we were only, you know, kind of teaching through the Bible verse by verse, it would take a long time for you to figure out why we do things the way we do. So it's, it's good for us to talk about this. And, and whether you have thought about it much at all, uh, the lead team and I, and, you know, Ben Preston and Zach, the church planners, right? They have spent time about, you know, the structure of our church or what things should look like or how things should operate. And, and one of the things that, you know, the flavor might always change from generation to generation, but the idea is that the message is sacred, all right? It's the gospel that we're all about. It's Jesus that we're about, but the methods might might change, right? We're not afraid to, to change things up once in a while. That's, there's nothing sacred about, you know, kind of two songs, a sermon, and then two more songs. Like this, that's not like some holy divine thing that God gave to us and measured out the shape of this building in cubits for us, right? Like the, the, the methodology may shift around. So that's, that's what we're about. But I want to talk about starting off again with the vision of our church. And the vision is to see Southern Vermont filled with disciples of Jesus, right? Because we are all about Jesus. We know that he is the primary thing that all of humanity for all generations need, right? So introducing people to him and giving them an experience uh, where they can encounter him is, is what we're about. And that encounter might not always be in the context of a gathering, right? That oftentimes is just through conversation where you are out amongst the community, out at your workplace, amongst your family, where you can end up sharing your story and how Jesus has affected your life. But what I want to point out, what's, what's cool is that uh, this vision wasn't ours. Uh, like no one in this room, no one that was here at first gathering, it wasn't any of our idea to do this. Uh, in fact, God chose to kind of, you know, give this idea to a couple of Georgians, you know, like someone who never even heard of Wilmington and may not have ever heard of Vermont. Like, I'm not sure on that one still. But, uh, but the idea is that God had put it in their hearts. People that don't know the families that have been in this valley for generations. People that, you know, didn't know any of us from Adam, right, is typically the term there, but, uh, but cared about us enough to, to interrupt their lives, right? Where Ben, right, you know, gives up his, his career as a firefighter, you know, moves his whole family up here and, and considered us worth his investment, worth changing every aspect of his life in order to do. And the Coddells obviously did that as well. But what's interesting is I don't want to somehow like put them on some pedestal like this is amazing uh, what they did that, you know, God gave them this vision because this vision wasn't just theirs or just, you know, the church that they were from. This is something that, that was God's heart right? That, that God loves our community, that God loves Wilmington, God loves this valley, and he has done so and has loved it generationally, right? This is something that he has thought about this community from eternity past, right? Where he is just infatuated with the people here, and he gave his all that they might be saved, right? Like, like a neighbor, perhaps, that you find annoying, Jesus thought that person was worth dying for, right? That, that, that was worth him suffering and shedding his blood for that individual, right? So, so God loves our community, 
right? And that's why we aren't conceited in thinking that like Valley Town Church is like some new big idea. Like, you know, we're going to tell everyone about Jesus up here. Like we've got it all figured out. We're the new, you know, thing on the block. We got to tell them what God is about. We recognize that, that we are among fellow ministers of the gospel, right? Right now there are other other pastors, other churches in our, our, in our area that are preaching the truth of the word of God, right? We're not like set apart from them as if we're like the special kids in God's family. Uh, we also realize that we come in a long line, generations past, where God has done works in this valley, that, that he has had people here faithfully being uh, a light to this world. Right, that we're not like suddenly a new idea or a new thing. This is something that has been on God's heart forever. But I want to point out that it is a beautiful thing that this vision was not our own, right? And and it's neat that God chose to place it in the hearts of you know some Georgians, you know, people that had never known us, and and not only were they willing to take this and interrupt their lives to to see this work start. Uh, but the, the believers and the churches in their community decided to fund it. Okay. They gave, and like I said, they don't know us. They don't know anything about us, but they thought that we were worth investing thousands of dollars to get this work started. Right. So it's, it's a beautiful thing that God had set that up. And, and I mean, if you look at the financial report, which I've got some copies over on the shelves over there, if you want to grab a hard copy, but you guys, I think most of you got the email. But if you look at that, you can see that a, a good portion of our, of our income, our giving here has been from the outside, from the external. And if I showed you the data over the last two years, a majority of this church has been sustained because of people who have never even been here. Right, that people gave to see this church get started. And I know that we would prefer to have this idea of self-sufficiency, right? Like that's kind of like this Vermont goal where we post articles on Facebook about like a self-sustaining farm and like that's the thing that we'd, we'd love to be able to have and we idealize, but we haven't been self-sustained or self-sufficient. And that's not to make us feel guilty or shame us in any way, because this is actually a biblical concept. It's a principle that God has in place, that this is actually what he wants to do and how he starts new works. All right. Uh, I've, I've actually got um, a lot of the passages that I'm going to be reading from today are from like three or four chapters in Second Corinthians, which I'm going to ask if, if anyone wants a copy of the Bible today. Bill will pass one out to you uh, if you want to give him the, the black ESV. I don't know. Have you guys heard of the Bible before? I don't know. You guys, is that new to you guys up here? But, uh, but if you want, you can follow along because I'm mostly going to be on page like 828 to 830 in there. No, I think you're good. All right. Thank you, though, Bill. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 7 through 8, this is what, what Paul is, is writing this church, and he talks about when he had started the church in Corinth. And he says, Was I wrong when I humbled myself and honored you by preaching God's good news to you without expecting anything in return? This next verse is even better. I love it. He says, I robbed other churches. Yeah, that dude's a criminal, right? He says, I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so I could serve you at no cost. All right, so, uh, so I want to point out that the Apostle Paul, when he would start a new work, he would preach the good news at no cost to the hearers, right? Where he was funded by other churches, right? And now when he says robbed, he didn't literally like, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. He didn't literally like sneak down to the Catholic church at night and like steal all their stuff and like sell it on the black market to fund his work, right? He, he robbed them in the sense that he accepted their, their generous contributions to make that church in Corinth happen, all right? And the church that funded him was actually the church in Macedonia, which the Bible declares in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 was actually a church that was extremely impoverished. Right? They were a poor church, and yet in their need, they still gave generously and supported Paul. And even while he was starting the church, they would actually send people out to bring him new supply to make sure that he could finish the work of starting that church. Right? So that's one of the things that they did, and that's one of the reasons why, why we believe that it's godly to have you know, the message available for free to those who hear it. 
especially for the first time, right? Or in the case of a church plant, that it's, it should be funded from the outside. So when, whenever we would send a church planter out, we're not expecting them to raise funds from the people they're bringing the message to. Because those people don't yet know the value of that message, right? Like if I go and make a collect call to a complete stranger, even if I'm offering them a million dollars, they don't yet know the value of paying the 50 cents or whatever, right? Like I'm just a stranger to them. They don't know what would be valuable on the other end. And that's why it's, it's a biblical concept for churches to fund church plants, right? To fund the work of God or to meet the needs of other saints, right? To, to make this sort of thing happen. Right, and that's what we're about. That's why we, as we mature as a church, we are interested in funding other places. That's why we're, you know, we've started funding this church plan in India with Reverian Sathwika, right, or Sathwika or Jaya Prakash, which I realize they probably can't pronounce my name either. So, I mean, who would have guessed Wadi is how you would get, you know, W U O T I? Right. So, so we're good. I talked to them the other day, though. They're doing well. They, they're actually praying for us, which is really cool. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's why we do this sort of thing is because we see this as a biblical model and we try to incorporate it, right? So, so we don't have to feel bad that other churches funded us to get this work started. But we do intend on sending people out and funding them, right? So, uh, so why do you think Paul was mentioning this in the first place? Like, why is he like, hey, do you remember, guys, that I preached the gospel to you for free? Like, why is he bringing this up? Is he, like, guilt-tripping them? Or, Well, it, it turns out that uh, the church in Corinth had made a goal, a commitment, to help fund the persecuted church in Jerusalem. All right, where they were going through extreme suffering and poverty as a result of their persecution. So they were like, let's rally behind this, right? Something kind of like if you uh, were here when Joe Fry came through and we did the Compassion International thing, some of you guys decided to help support those kids who were in need. And that's the same sort of thing where this church had made a goal and now Paul is encouraging them to follow up and follow through on that goal with with action of like, hey, let's, let's act like, just so you know, like we're going to be coming by. We're hitting all these churches to, to come and gather the funds to support the church in Jerusalem. So he's, he's calling them to action and, and reminding them, listen, like other churches started you guys as well, right? Uh, so this is why we as a church, we are interested in supporting church plants. We are interested in supporting missionaries. We want to fund the, the spread of the good news. Uh, so that, that kind of gets to a point like, why doesn't God just bankroll this? I hear that dude's got deep pockets, right? Like, why, why isn't he just like, yeah, oh, I got you covered. Oh, blank check, you, what do you need? Oh, here you go. You know, like, why isn't he doing that? Why, why does God have us give it all, right? Because he could have chosen to just, you know, instantly like, oh, uh, you know, I'm just a payroll company. I'll just distribute the funds to all the churches. Everything's bam, taken care of. But... But there are, are several reasons. And uh, one of the things I want to point out, first of all, is, is that we are right to assume that, that God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our, our stuff. And it, it says this in Acts uh, chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. It says, the God who made the world and, and everything in it, all right, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by man. Right? So it's like we can't somehow like build a house big enough to fit God in it. And then the next verse, I like this. Uh, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and, and breath and, and everything. Right? So, so what this is pointing out is that, that God doesn't need our stuff. God's not after our money. He wants, in, in fact, he wants something for us rather than from us. And, and if there was a, a, you know, one side of the relationship that was in need, this verse points out that it's, it's us, right? That he gave us life. He gave us every breath that we breathe, right? He, he gave us everything, right? So like in, in terms of that relationship, like we're the mooches, right? He's not going to ever hit us up and be like, hey, can I borrow $5? I want to buy a Whopper, right? Like, he's not going to ask that. In fact, in Psalms, he says, listen, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. He's like, I own everything. I own like the thousand cattles on a hill. You know, like, he's like, I've got this covered. Like, I own everything. But, 
But what I want to point out is that, that there's several reasons why he chose to set it up where we get to participate to share in the meeting of other people's needs. That he set it up where we get to give. And, and one of the reasons, as he aims for some of the primary problems, is that he wants us to be free from idolatry. All right, where, where Jesus put it this way, he says, you cannot serve God and money. That, that there will be conflict if, if you're trying to, to manage both of those as your God, right? So, so Jesus, who, who actually talked about money a lot in the New Testament, uh, he wasn't afraid to talk about it because he knew that he wanted to have us be free from idols in our hearts. He wanted us to be free from, from greed, Right? That's why in First Timothy 6, it says that it's the, the love of money, not money, but the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil, right? J- Jesus wanted us to be free. And it's because we have these selfish tendencies, right? Uh, it's because we, we naturally, you know, happen to usually serve money or seek money and pursue money more than God. We make it a priority more than he is, right? That it becomes an idol. And, and that's one of the reasons why we can start to feel uncomfortable especially whenever like we read it in the Bible or especially when like some pastor starts talking about it on a Sunday, right? We start like, you know, like I'm going to hide my wallet, you know, like I'm going to hold on to my, is it a purse or a pocketbook? I don't know. My high school students always made fun of me when I called it a, I don't know. I didn't know if there was like a generation gap that occurred with that one, but either way, uh, but, but God is not afraid to start pinpointing uh, the idols in our lives, Right? God is interested in, in just knocking down and, and smashing the idols in our hearts because he knows that we will ultimately be free when we pursue him first. Right? That that's, that's what he would want for us. And another thing he wants for us in our giving is that it allows us to be free from worry. That when, when money is our God, he's like, listen, like, you kind of chose a terrible God. Like, money is not very reliable. You, you can't really build a lot of confidence in money. It will disappoint you, right? Money is, is futile. It, it, it's, it's going to fail you. And, and, and one of the things that Jesus wants for us is to be free from worry, right? Free from anxiety, right? So whether we, we have money or, you know, and it's like, okay, this is the only thing that makes me feel, you know, comfortable where I can finally calm down and relax. And cause I've got this money in the bank that if something goes wrong, I've got this right. Like that we can be like that. Or if we don't have money and we're like so full of anxiety and like, Oh man, like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to get the money to pay this? And right. We, we are full of worry and Jesus actually commands us not to worry. Right. So he doesn't want us to serve a God that is not a good God. It's, it's, it fails at being an effective God. It won't meet our needs. But one of the things that's interesting is that, that just like uh, God doesn't need us to serve him, right? God doesn't need us to, to live for him. God doesn't need us to give to him. He, he chose to have it work that way, right? Where we get to be co-laborers with him, right? That, that he, like, instead of, you know, him just being like, listen, like, I know you just got saved or whatever, but you can just kind of sit there, watch TV, do nothing for the rest of your life. I got the world covered. I got the, I got the whole world in my hands. Like, have you heard the song? Like, like, I've got this covered, but no, he chooses to let us play a part. He chooses to let us work alongside him because he knows that we are benefited, that there is a value in us being able to serve alongside him. And that's the same reason, one of the reasons why he has us give, right? It actually says this in 2 Corinthians 8, talking about the Macedonian church when they heard first about this need in Jerusalem. It says that they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. All right, so I want to point out that these, these chapters, they're not talking about a regular church offering. All right, they're talking about like a special offering, kind of like, you know, when Christmas Eve, we were like, let's set aside this money for, for India, right? And that was a special sort of offering. But even still in it, we can see God's heart regarding giving or what our hearts should be regarding giving. And this church in Macedonia, they, the, the New Living Translation says it this way, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift of the believer's in Jerusalem, right? So, so that's the point. The Bible talks about giving as a privilege, right? As a favor to us, right? That's why it, it says that it's actually, 
I know this sounds crazy, but it's better to give than to receive. That's not just like something on Christmas cards. It's a Bible verse, all right? But it's actually true. God wants us to be able to take part in giving because it, it brings value to, to us, right? So that's, that's one of the things that we desire to do, right? Whether it's giving to a church or giving to the poor or meeting the needs of someone, that's something that God wants us to take part in alongside with, with him. So some people would probably ask like, well, okay, so am I giving to God? You know, am I giving to this poor person or am I giving to a church? Like what's actually going on there? Like, I mean, cause I don't write God on the check, right? Like he doesn't, like I don't deposit it, you know, into heaven somehow that way. Uh, it's actually, it's, it's both. Um, giving is, is done to the Lord first and then by his will to a church or the ministry. And that's what the last verse in that passage had said was that, right, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So we actually, when we do give in the place or in the avenues that God calls us to, we are actually giving to God. All right, I, on the bonus content, I, I've got some verses about this dude named Cornelius and that the angel, an angel showed up to him and revealed that to him. He's like, listen, like God appreciates the gifts that you, you give. Another reason that we give is to take care of the needs of the saints. One of the things we see in the New Testament church is that when there was a need that the church family would give so that there'd be some degree of equality, right? That those who would have an abundance would give so that those who had lack wouldn't lack anymore, right? So that's one of the things that our giving should not just be in in uh, giving to a church, but we should also be taking care of each other as a church family, right? That we literally are to look at each other like family and, and not like maybe you look at some of your family where you don't get along and you'd never help them out, but like a family that actually loves each other is what God desires for us. But, but as far as if, you know, when you give to a church, the church does take care of some of the needs of the saints, primarily spiritual needs, right? As far as teaching the word of God and, and helping people grow and, and disciple, right? And, and our church, we, you know, obviously do that locally here, but we also then give, you know, to church planting efforts in New England, right? Or we give to church planting efforts in India now. And we've also, another need that we meet is we're starting that Celebrate Recovery group because we see that there's a need in our community. And, and some of those people, they don't know that they have a spiritual need yet, they don't realize that's the thing that's the hole inside of them that they're trying to fill with heroin or whatever else, right? But, but we're there, we're offering something that will meet a, a social need even, a support, a friendship alongside them, and then hopefully ending up meeting their, their social, spiritual need. And our church, we've even started meeting some physical needs, right? Where we're actually, we're now partnered up with the Deerfield Valley Food Pantry, right? Meeting just some plain old physical needs. Or like I said, last year, uh, some of you guys signed up to take care of some Compassion International kids, right? Or you can give to orphanages, right? Haiti, I know some that, that could absolutely use the help. The, the, those are areas that, that God would want and would call us to be generous in, and, and like I said earlier, that we should also, whenever we do know that there's a struggle or a family or an individual that has some challenge in our church family, we should help each other out. We should help each other out. And here's, this is going to be so much fun. It's going to be, I figure like, I just have to out, like if there's an uncomfortable conversation, I just figure if I can out awkward the other person, I win. Like, so that's what I'm going to try to do today. This is good. Uh, Here's what the Bible teaches is that we also give so that those who teach are supported by those who are taught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is going to be, uh, it's going to appear very self-serving when I read some of these passages, but hopefully you guys know my heart. Uh, Galatians 6, 6, it says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay. So... That's interesting, right? Uh, the New Living Translation puts it this way. Th those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers. This is the kind of the biblical standard for the New Testament church, right? That those who teach are supported, okay? Um, and this principle actually even goes back to the Old Testament when God set up the nation of Israel, where he would have the, the, the priesthood, the tribe of Levi, where they were funded by the 11 other tribes, okay? So that's the model that he'd set up, and that way the nation could continue to grow spiritually and focus on the things that were important. Uh, and I want to point out that this sort of phrase that, you know, those who are taught should provide for those who teach, uh, 
isn't actually offensive in any other context, right? Sometimes we feel awkward about it in the church setting. But if I said, um, you know, those who send their kids to a school should pay the teachers to teach them, right? You'd probably be like, yeah, that makes sense, right? Like, we should do that, right? Right? I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, Or if you take ski lessons in Mount Snow, you should pay the ski instructor, right? It's not offensive in those situations. So God, likewise, kind of has it as kind of the standard for the New Testament church. Um, and let's see, let's dig deeper while I'm, I'm at it. First uh, Timothy 5, this is going to be fun. Uh, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says that you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So it's talking about like, you know, you got an ox pulling a cart, maybe you're harvesting in the grain, you don't cover its mouth, so that way it can kind of eat the food as it's doing its work. Which, by the way, this is the verse, if you ever work in our Valleytown kids space, right, you get to eat the animal crackers too, right? Like, I use this passage all the time. I taught Sunday school for years since I was a teenager. This is the word of God that I would fall back on and be like, oh, I get, I get goldfish too, that, mm, don't muzzle the ox, right? Uh, so, so you get to do that, that's okay, it's the word of God. Uh, and then it says that the laborer is worthy uh, or deserves his wages, Okay, uh, so, so I want to look at that first verse 17, if you could put it up there. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And uh, let's just dig in. This word honor, uh, it's the Greek word, I'd probably pronounced timaes or something. Uh, but it occurs seven times in the New Testament. And five of the seven times, it's actually translated to refer to a price or a sum of money. Okay, all right. Uh, so... And, and I think you would probably agree that according to the, the following analogies after that statement, that it was talking about, you know, muzzle the ox, make sure that people can get their food, or, you know, a laborer deserves their wages. It's talking about paying those who teach. Um, and let's just dig right in here. Uh, it mentions the word double. And I'm not mentioning this so that, like, we can talk about Brian getting a pay raise today or tonight at the family meeting. That's not what we're bringing it up about, but let's, let's actually look at the other side of the word double, okay? Uh, let's bring some healthy balance to this. Uh, notice it didn't say they deserve 10 times the honor or 30 times the honor or 100 times the honor. I think you would agree that the Bible has some sort of appropriate cap for what those who teach the word of God should be paid. All right. Uh, so, so let's, let's appreciate that side of things because I'm sure we've all heard of or seen churches or televangelists where there's a degree of extravagance in the way that they live their lives. Uh, so the Bible does have some sort of appropriate balance and yeah, some churches appear to get a little carried away with kind of like making a king for themselves to like show off, you know, look how nice a car the pastor drives or whatever. It's like, no, 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 that's not what we're about. Uh, and, and hopefully you guys know my heart that I'm not after your money, uh, that I'm not trying to get rich, uh, that I'm, I want to be a pastor in a small town in Vermont. I'm not trying to get like some books published right now, or uh, I don't want to be the next televangelist um, or a mega church pastor. Okay. That's not what I'm after. And, and even um, before I'd started this job, uh, my family and I, we were intentionally living off of one income, the income of a, a school teacher, right? So I wasn't like, you know, some stock trade investor guy. I wasn't trying to get rich, and I'm still not. Hopefully you know my heart. But, uh, but that's the idea is that those who teach are supported by those who listen. And it's valuable now for me to, to focus on the bad side of this, okay, where we've perhaps been in churches where we've been burned, where there's mismanagement in the finances, or when we've seen people who do operate out of greedy motives, okay? Or, or you hear the stories about, you know, a preacher asking for $65 million for a jet the other week, right? Uh, where there's some imbalance in the things that we've seen. That's why people are like, those preachers all just want your money, right? Like that's, and because we all typically have these sorts of anecdotes. And what's neat is that this is not a new problem. This isn't something that came up in 1980s America, like, 
and that was like, oh no, like we've got these people that are living in extravagance. No, no, no. This is something that happened even back in the early, early church. Uh, it talks about false teachers. It's not a new thing, right? So there's, there's people who are manipulative, kind of like cult leaders, you know, trying to operate according to greed, get people to lavish funds upon them. Second uh, Peter 2, uh, it says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. All right. So this is like, think about this as a promise of God that in your generation, there will be false teachers out there that will rise up. Okay. And notice one of the motives it talks about, you can read the rest about them later if you want, but it says that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Or the New Living Translation says that in their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money, right? So this was an issue even back in the early church. And they would warn believers. They would warn the church, the the family, the flock of God. They would warn them about these false teachers, right? Because we don't want, you know, false doctrines being, you know, promoted. We want to protect people from living lies. And we don't obviously want people taking advantage of you for your money, uh, first Thessalonians, um, Paul talking about his own work in two five, it says, for we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pre with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So a pretext is a false reason that masks the true motive. So he's saying we didn't come to you motivated by greed, but like pretending it was something else, right? When we preach the word of God to you, we, you know, we're honest in our dealings. And I like the uh, New Living Translation on this one. It says, and God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. And this actually, this concept is one of the reasons why I intentionally, as the pastor, I don't know who gives what amount. I don't know if you've never given into the offering here, right? I mean, I know like the total numbers. So as a lead team, we can like try to make better decisions, but, but I don't know what you guys give. And that, that protects me, that protects my heart from this sort of a possible temptation, right? Like, I don't want to know that someone's like the big giver and then I've got to like go and like glad hand them every, hey, how are you doing? It's so good. You want to go golfing this weekend? And just like, like, I don't want to do that. And then also it protects me on the other end where then I'm allowed to preach the word of God with full boldness and equality where I'm not like, oh, that's so-and-so's pet sin. I'm not going to preach that verse this Sunday. Like, I'm going to avoid offending them because if they leave the church, man, you know, uh, so it, it protects me. And then it also allows me to care for the church equally, right? Where in the book of James, it talks about, right, don't give favor to the rich person over the poor person. Don't say, like, rich person comes in, oh, here, come sit down right here. And then the poor person, you can stand in the back, right? Like, don't do that, right? So, like, when you call me, if there's a need or counseling or whatever, right, I'm going to treat you as though you are our biggest giver, right? It just removes any possible temptation, which hopefully I wouldn't be so, you know, I wouldn't be like that even if I did know. But, but either way, it, it protects me. So it's one of the things that we do. But we do see that the Bible kind of warns of, of these kinds of people that will, they're motivated just by like filling their bank account and they'll, they'll lie to you, they'll be your friend, they'll, they'll even twist the word of God in order to twist your arm, right? They'll even try to manipulate one's own greed against them and be like, hey, listen, you do this and God's going to take care of you. You know, like they'll, they'll try to, you know, leverage different things and, and it's crazy, right? It's crazy that that, that can happen. Uh, so, uh, but greed is actually not just a danger for church leaders or these false teachers. It's also a danger for, for those of us who sit in the pew that were part of the church family, right? Uh, in First Timothy 6, It says that those who, uh, with minds deprived of the truth, are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And this is a temptation that can hit any of us, okay? Where, Where maybe you've seen people that are like, listen, I figured it out. Like, there's this investment strategy, like, you, you know, you just do this, you set aside this money, you do a little dance, drop it in the bucket, and then like, bam, God will make you a millionaire, right? Like, I figured it out. Right? And, and like they somehow believe that uh, they can trick God into worshiping their greed with them. Right? And that's not the case. Right? That's not the case at all. And there are, we'll get to some of the passages in the Bible in a little bit that, that you know, you could almost see how they could get carried away with that thought. But, but notice verse 6 in this passage. It says, but, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
right? There is a benefit when we keep our greed in check, when we're actually content, which later on in this passage, it says like, you know, if you've got food and clothing, be content, right? Like God's taking care of your needs, be content. Don't like, you know, and it actually warns us that, uh, you know, pursuing to get rich ends up causing harm to ourselves. But the idea is that we've got to be content with what we have. We don't want to pursue these things. And when we mix that with godliness, that it actually does produce a great gain in us. Okay, so, so that's one thing uh, to be aware of. So, okay, here we go. Let's, let's look at this question. What amount should we give? All right, what, what amount should we give? And the answer to that question is probably different for everybody. Uh, even the belief structure behind that is probably different for a lot of us. Uh, I'll just build some basis. In the Old Testament, God set up the nation of Israel where 10%, a tithe is what the Bible refers to it as, was set aside from everyone's increase, right? So if you had cattle and you got more cattle than 10%, you would set aside. Or if you were a farmer, right, you'd set aside 10% of your crops. Or if you're a merchant, 10% of your profits uh, or revenue or whatever you would set aside. And it, would, it was given to support the priesthood in that nation. That's how God set it up in the law of Moses, right? Uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But even before the law of Moses, before the nation of Israel, we see that Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, right? He actually gives a tithe to a priest, Melchizedek, right? So this concept of tithing actually predates the law. Um, and Jesus taught about tithing in the New Testament in Matthew twenty three twenty three, where he said uh, that tithing should be done without neglecting the weightier matters of the law, being uh, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. All right, so Jesus said that this was a good thing in the, right, the culture that he was preaching to, that this should be done, but it's not as important as these other things. Okay, And since Jesus had died and, and rose again, nowhere else in the New Testament does it mention tithing. Okay, The, the Bible talks about giving. Uh, and so if you ask, you know, do Christians have to tithe? Uh, there are many churches that have different answers to that question. There are people here in our church family that have different answers to that question. But we, we don't teach it as being something that's mandatory. Okay? Uh, but... Like, if you believe in it, like, believe it with all your heart and do it. Because, yeah, there, there, was, there were blessings associated with it. Probably still are. I mean, like, my wife and I, we practiced... Never mind. I, yeah, we've practiced that for a while, and, and it's something that, that we do. But it's not... Don't feel as though it's something that is mandatory. Okay? That, that God will speak to your heart regarding what to give. Okay? Okay? Uh, but I would point out that there is, uh, notice like God's intent behind it, that there is a simple beauty to it, that, that it results in that there's not this uh, a burden placed unequally on anyone, right? That it's kind of like fairly across the board applied, that those who don't have much won't give much, right? Those who have a lot will give a lot, right? This idea of a percentage or a proportion ends up working nice. And I would point out that... Uh, mathematically in a base 10 number system that a tithe, you just shift the decimal place and it does the math real easy for you. But uh, nonetheless, um, but one of the other things that I would caution that those of us who might believe in tithing is uh, sometimes uh, people can get the mentality of like, all right, I'm going to give God 10% and then he's got to look the other way for how I spend the 90%. And that's, that's not how it works. This isn't like a bribe of like, all right, I'm going to give God 10% and then I get to do whatever I want with the rest. Because the reality is that 100% of what comes through our hands is his. So we want to honor God, not just in our giving, but also in our saving and in our spending, right? We want to honor him with, with all of it. Uh, so, so don't think that you can kind of like trick God in that way. Not that I don't think anyone does, but sometimes... I think the way that we spend or just our natural tendency can end up that way. Uh, but check this out. This is also bringing additional balance. Second Corinthians 8, it says, Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean that your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I mean that there should be some equality. So the main thing I want to pull from that is that we don't give out of what we don't have. 
right? I'm not ever going to stand up here like I've heard some televangelists do and be like, you know, take that credit card, give $1,000 to the church, and God will make all of your debt disappear, right? God wouldn't ask you to do that because that's money that you don't have, right? He will never ask you to give what you don't have. He'll, he'll only ask you to give out of what you do have, right? So that's just some additional balance because I know some people can get carried away, kind of like this, you know, sort of faith mentality of like, I'm just going to give and you can't outgive God, right? And, and like, although that's true, it's absolutely true, but like we don't want to, you know, fall into this, this uh, wrong practice right here of, of giving what we don't have. But what I would point out is that the Bible says that we do give out of what we do have. And sometimes for some people, not for all of us, not for all times, God might ask you to give everything that you have, all right? That he might pinpoint that as, as something that you need to do. In fact, in Mark ten twenty one, with the rich young ruler, Jesus noticed that this one guy's hangup was his worship of money, right? Because he's like, listen, Jesus, like I do all of the 10 commandments. I've been doing them since I was a kid. Like I'm a pretty great guy. Like what, you know, what am I lacking? And he's like, there's one thing that you lack. He says, take all that you have, sell it and give the money to the poor. Right? So would you be willing to just like part with everything that your name has claimed to right now? Right? And I actually just heard a story this week about a family who uh, they'd sold their house and they, they took that money and invested it, moved to Brazil as missionaries and are able to live 100% off of just the interest earned off of that house money. Right? So that they're able to, they just completely walked away and now they're living their lives bringing the gospel to, to these people. So it's kind of a cool thing. Like they were willing to walk away from everything. So there may be times that God asks you to give everything. I'm not saying to the church, I'm saying that whatever he leads you to give to, right? That he might ask that. And Jesus, in fact, the, I think it was the Sabbath before he died, he, he notices in the temple, these people were giving offerings and he, he takes note of this poor widow who, who puts in two coins, like the, the lowest denomination of currency they had, into the offering. And he makes a point to his disciples. He says, listen, this lady gave more than everyone else here today. And there were wealthy people giving huge donations there that day. And in fact, they even had this, this tactic of, uh, they would like blow trumpets and like, this person gave $1,000, you know, like every, you know, and bringing undue attention to that sort of thing, which so, uh, so yeah, we don't boast in in our giving, first of all. And, and also, he, he pointed out that it's not the amount, right? It's, it's the heart, the fact that this lady gave everything. And he said, this was more than what the rest had given. But either way, he won't ask you to give what you don't have. But what I would ask you to pray about is that you pray and ask God, what portion, what percent, what amount are you supposed to be giving? Right? And, and that God, that's actually something that God specifically wants to reveal to your heart. And then once he tells you that, because I mean, granted, like, well, even like taking that step to ask, like, God, what should I give? That's easily a prayer that we could ignore. But once he tells you that, then give faithfully. All right? Do it regularly. Right? Where be consistent with it. Uh, and, or, you know, pray about it frequently if you want and change it, whatever. But but, but be faithful to give what God asks you to because it's amazing what he does do in your life in providing for your needs otherwise. Um, and one of the things I'd point out in terms of like giving regularly is uh, I knew a guy who he would take, right, because he was a tither, he would take his amount and then like we had like three church meetings a week. So he would like divide it all up so that he would always have something to give into the bucket. You know, so it's like, oh, that's Sunday. Bing. And then like, oh, it's Monday. Bing. You know, and like, and like, it's like, a, like, you don't need to do that, you know, <laughs> like, because then at that point, it's almost like you're giving for the show or the spectacle of everyone else. And that's not what we want to do. Uh, we don't do it for others to see. Um, so it doesn't have to be every week, right? I get paid monthly. So I give monthly and I, and I end up, cho- I choose to kind of do that as one of the first things I do when I get a paycheck, uh, which one of the reasons why I do that. Uh, which I'm not saying that this has to be the case, but in, in Proverbs 3.10, it says to, to honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your increase. So I just try to make this like a priority, like God, I'm putting you first. And that's, that's what I do. But either way, it's something that you can pray about and something that God wants to reveal to you. And we see that uh, in 2 Corinthians 9, where it talks about kind of our motives in giving. Uh, and it says this, verse six. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly, 
will also reap sparingly. All right, it's talking about farming terms. Whoever's planting few seeds gets a small harvest back. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So our motivation is, right, our heart should be in a state of being cheerful and happy about it. And it says, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that's a lot of all, so that's a good deal, uh, you may abound in every good work. Verse 10, check this out, for God's provision. Because sometimes, I want, you, I want you to catch this. It says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. All right, so that last part there, uh, perhaps you'd think it would be easy, like, yeah, of course God's going to provide the, the money that I'm supposed to give away. But he's also faithful to provide the bread for food. Okay, he, he provides for both. Uh, but this is the idea, is that God... And this is where some of those false teachers can like try to twist this a little bit or get people overexcited about it. But God has chosen to link his provision for us to our own generosity. All right, he has done that legitimately. We see that kind of throughout the scripture. Uh, so that the idea that, you know, when we are generous, that he does, he's faithful to provide for our needs. We, we reap a bountiful harvest. Uh, and, and I want to point out that in every provision he gives us, he also has a seed as a part of that provision, right? That he doesn't want the, the buck to stop here, right? He, he, when he provides something, he intends a part of that to be given away, right? That he doesn't want us to just be like kind of a dead end. He wants us to be an avenue through which, through which we can bless other people. And so don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. That's one of the reasons why, right, this past fall, we stopped passing around the buckets. Not that that's sinful, right? There's churches that do that. Uh, but we didn't want to make that, like, awkward feeling of, like, kind of like someone, like, hitting you with a bucket and, like, what? I'm not giving this. Like, you know, where it just feels uncomfortable. Uh, so that's why we just kind of, like, you know, set it in the back. Like, we try to keep it simple. We don't want to make any reluctance or compulsion in giving. And that's another reason why, like with the financial report, I'm not going to be reminding you every week of like, guys, you gave this much last week and these were the bills and come on, uh, we're not going to do that, right? I think it's healthy for us to communicate that to you, but I don't want to hit you over the head over, you know, every week because it will result in that, you know, compulsion to give like, okay, I guess, you know, and, and by the way, I didn't plan on um, two of the light bulbs being out today when I'm talking about this. We can keep our lights on even if you don't give. Uh, Bill's going to help me out. I've got the bulbs. It's just a matter of climbing up there and so, so yeah, that wasn't uh, that wasn't the plan. Uh, but yeah, uh, and and that's the idea is that we give cheerfully. And one of the ways that we try to maintain the ability to give cheerful here is uh, the way we manage our funds. Right, the whole idea of us publishing a report like that is we want a degree of transparency so that you guys can give by faith in confidence that it's, it's being managed well. And, and we pull this from uh, 2 Corinthians 8, where in, in managing the distribution of this gift to the church in Jerusalem, this is what they did. Uh, verse 20, it says, we take this course being which he talks about earlier, sending Titus, this dude, and this other guy who had been uh, selected by the churches uh, to help deliver the gift so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. Verse 21, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man, right? So they had a degree of accountability. It wasn't just Paul going around and be like, yeah, give me all the money and yeah, it'll get to Jerusalem, right? Like he had a team of people coming with him, some of them appointed by the churches to make sure that they handled that in an honorable way, right? And so that's why we, we aim to do what's honorable in the sight of the Lord. When the lead team meets on Tuesdays, we try to make decisions, right? That it's like, is this going to honor God? We pray about how we, we spend things. We read scripture. It's like, okay, like we feel like this is the right thing to do. We're going to do it. Uh, and then in publishing a report like that, or a lot, you know, having our family meeting tonight, which if you guys want to come to, we'd be glad to have you. Uh, we're allowed to be able to do, handle this, these funds honorably in the sight of, of man, which is, is a good thing to do, right? That's a right thing to do. Let's have uh, uh, Josh come up and
And what motivates our giving, what Paul mentions in this series of chapters, is, is Jesus. All right, Jesus is the, the main reason that we give. Uh, because the way, well, I'll just read this verse. Uh, verse 8, 9, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. All right, so we serve the most generous God. I mean, we serve the only God, but he's massively generous. And the way that our relationship tends to be with him that we see biblically is that ours is one of of reciprocity, right? Where we reciprocate the things that he does towards us back at him, okay? Uh, Where the Bible says that uh, he loved us and as a result, we can now love him. All right, or we see that Jesus came on this earth, lived a perfect life, right? He did good works, did a work of salvation on the cross for us. And now as a result, not for our salvation, but because of it, we also now do good works, right? Or Jesus gave his all for us, so now we give our lives, all of ourselves for him, right? So it's, it's that generosity that, that motivates us to give. And it's the gospel and recognizing people's need to hear about Jesus, to be forgiven, that motivates our giving, right? Our generosity. So let's, let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your faithfulness in caring for your church, uh, that God, you provide for the needs of your, your family, that individually uh, you take care of us, God, and that as a church you've equipped us that we can abound uh, in every good work, uh, that we are able to accomplish the things that you've called us to do. I thank you, God, that you also care about your flock enough to warn us of false teachers and false motives, Uh, that, God, you care about us enough to confront the idols in our hearts or the idols in the hearts of leaders. Uh, And, God, we ask that you would just be at work in us, that we would be generous as you are generous, that we would be led by your spirit, that we would, when we give, through whichever avenues we do give, that, Lord, we would be able to do so cheerfully, uh, demonstrating joy that you have given us because of your salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.